<laughs> no pressure then. Good evening, everyone. It's uh, lovely to see you all. Many faces I know and other faces I don't know. And it's especially good to see the faces I don't know because it means this place. <laughs> Let me finish my sentence, Mike. Uh, <laughs> um, because it means this place is growing and new things are happening and new, new people are gathering. And that's great. Um, I'm now involved with uh, an interesting experiment called Common Ground, which has a, a home at St. Mary's Church in, in Quarry Street. And it connects with the theme we've got this evening, which is about what's the relationship with, between the kind of community we are, uh, the kind of family, the kind of people we are together, and our connection with the world, our witness, our, our sharing the gospel. How does community flow into mission and evangelism? And uh, those stories we've just heard are, are lovely examples of, of how just one by one people are experimenting with that, being bold and launching out. And uh, Common Ground is a mission community, we call it. It's about 20 to 25 of us, drawn from about eight churches across Guildford. We haven't left our churches. We're still worshipping there. This is not a new church. It's a covenanted group of people. We've taken promises uh, to each other before God that we will pray daily and we will pray for each other and we will pray together. We will meet together for fellowship and teaching and learning and planning and we will go together uh, in mission in creative and new ways. And we had a year exploring what this was all about uh, and then last September we, we took those promises together and for a few months now, we've been uh, experimenting. What might this life together look like? Um, and what might God do through people who are committed to each other in that kind of way uh, and whose commitment is to uh, go in mission? And the one thing we're doing, which I, I'd just like to, to mention in follow-up to uh, th those testimonies we've just heard, is that we've started something we call Night Vision, which is a form of night church, which is something rather unusual in Britain, but much more common in Europe. And uh, St. Mary's is open at the moment just once a month on a Friday night from about 8 o'clock till 11 o'clock. I'm trying to push it later because I think to 12 or 1 o'clock will actually be more, uh, more fruitful. It's open. We have a theme for the evening. Um, we have what you and I might call prayer stations, but they're sort of uh, places for reflection and engagement. Uh, we might have thoughts for the night offered. We offer refreshments. We offer conversation. Um, and uh, we just have the church open and we uh, wander in the streets outside inviting people to come in and talk and converse. And it entirely bears out what Nicky Gumbel was was saying really about an openness and a, and a questioning. Every time we've done this, and we've done it now six or seven times, there have been people who've come in and said, I'd like to talk about this. This is an amazing place, this church. I've never been in a church. I haven't been in a church since my uncle's funeral or, or, whatever, the, uh, or whatever it is. And uh, one idea, one story came particularly to mind as you were talking one evening uh, there were a young couple at the gate of St. Mary's. Uh, the young man said he was Romanian, working in this country, and he had an English 
girlfriend. And then he looked at the, uh, the member of our team who was with him and said, you know, it was Easter time. And he said, you know, I've just never got it. I've, I've never understood what this stuff is about. I don't know the story and I don't know what you're talking about when you talk about uh, Easter and Good Friday and these things. Can you tell me? And so they went and sat in St. Mary's Church, and I don't know how the conversation went, uh, but they were there for half an hour, and he was just asking questions. And each time we've done that, that, that kind of thing has, has happened. And it depends on the weather and whether people are out on the streets or not, but usually we have 30, 40, or 50 people coming through the church um, on an evening like that. And it's uh, when you just say, well, we're here, we're here, God, we're... We don't know who's going to come, we don't know who's going to walk in, but we're here to talk, we're here to show them the church, we're here to talk about the displays, whatever. Um, it's been extraordinary and it's been a, a great encouragement in what we are doing together. So uh, that's what I, I'm involved with these days. And the theme that for this evening is one that has really interested me and really provoked our conversation as a group. What kind of community do we need to be? How do we need to grow together so that we can be uh, people of mission? And uh, so I'm thrilled to be talking about that this evening, and I'm going to read to you from the book of Acts. Um, something from chapter 11, and then something from chapter 13. Uh, many of you are familiar probably with the book of Acts. Others, it may be just uh, a part of the Bible that you haven't explored very much. The book of Acts is about the earliest events in the life of the church after the resurrection of Jesus and the, finish, the completion of his ministry on earth with the ascension. And it tells the stories of the first things that happened uh, in, in the Christian church. And what I want to read to you this evening is about the first uh, really important events that happened beyond Jerusalem, outside that initial circle uh, where the Christian message uh, began to penetrate, began to connect with completely non-Christian, completely non-Jewish uh, context, what, what we might call pagan or a totally unbelieving contexts. So this concerns the church in Antioch. Antioch is in the top sort of right-hand corner of the Mediterranean, sort of up there in the elbow. Um, and it's about 300 miles, I would guess, from Jerusalem. And it was one of the great cities of the ancient world. It was the third city of the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And it was uh, a great port, Seleucus was just down the river, uh, which was one of the great ports of the time. It was a great cosmopolitan place with traders and business people and residents from all over the Roman Empire and from Persia and the East. It was just a, a great, cultural, uh, great cultural mix of people of every kind. Totally different to Jerusalem. Jerusalem also had people from all over the Mediterranean living there, but it was a, a Jewish city that was deeply rooted in Jewish culture and Jewish faith, and that was the world. That was the assumption uh, into which everything else fitted. So what's interesting about this story is it's about a radically new context and uh, what happens when the message about Jesus begins to get involved. The story goes like this. It follows on the death of Stephen, who was killed for his Christian faith. 
Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, which is the area I was talking about, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So that's, that's the story so far, really. The story of Jesus, the story of the crucified Messiah and of the risen Lord, that story had only been shared with Jews to that point. They knew the context. They knew the background. They knew why this was a, a story of significance. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. That's actually one of the most important sentences in the New Testament. It's a, a total hinge. It's a total shift of direction. Everything up to this point has been within the Jewish world, the Jewish culture, and Jewish assumptions. Here, people whose names we don't know took the extraordinary step of telling the Christian story to people to whom they thought perhaps it didn't really belong, it wasn't really their story, why should they be interested or concerned? It wasn't for them, perhaps. Anyway, they told the story. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem. Panic, shock, horror. What on earth are these guys doing? What on earth is happening? This is not how the story is supposed to go. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, here's the mark of the man, and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. This man, though he, he had a Greek background, he came from Cyprus, but he'd been in Jerusalem a long time, he was part of that Jewish world, he had the imagination, he had the sensitivity of heart, he had the understanding of God's purposes to realize this was entirely right and proper, and it was evidenced so because of the evidence of, gra of the grace of God in people's lives. And so he encouraged them and said, get on with it, this is authentic, this is the real thing. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, which is up in Turkey, to look for Saul, whom we know as Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That's where we got our name. So it's an important story for that alone. Now this bringing of Saul from Tarsus to teach is, is a really significant little, little point. They, he came for a year at least. They taught for a year. Why? Because this new community of Christians, this new community of people who had come to encounter the crucified Messiah and the risen Lord, and were beginning to say, well, what does it mean to live in the light of this? What does it mean to be a disciple of this man? They had no background. They had no rootedness in the Bible, no rootedness in the Old Testament, no understanding of the stories of the Old Testament and how that led forward to the story of Jesus. They didn't have a clue. In that sense, rather like the folk that we've been talking about this evening and our society. We live in a society where people don't have a clue. They don't know Abraham from Moses. 
And this is a context not dissimilar in that sense to the one we live in. So it's worth noting that Barnabas said these people need to be taught. They need to, they need to be well-rooted in the story of God's love and purpose through human history that culminates in this story. That means we can understand why the one who is God's chosen one ended up on a cross. And they taught for a year. It's actually from Paul's later writings. It's possible tentatively to construct what they might have taught over that year, but it would have been great to have been a fly on the wall or to have had the handouts. So then there's a, then, so there's a year at least in which Barnabas and Saul are teaching the people and grounding them in, in the biblical story, getting them orientated so that the story of Jesus makes sense. And being a disciple of Jesus begins to hang together and to be profoundly attractive. And then sometime after that, we read that in chapter 13, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger. Interesting that with a name like that, he was very probably a black African that points to the, the cosmopolitan nature of Antioch. Lucius of Cyrene, which is in North Africa. Minion, who had been brought up with Herod. So he was in the sort of political upper class. And Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John Mark was with them as their helper, probably the man who wrote Mark's gospel. It's a great story, isn't it? And uh, as soon as you just sort of unpack it a little bit like that, you can begin to see uh, there's something really important, something really significant happening here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you particularly for this book of Acts, which just reveals to us the wonder and splendor of uh, the gospel and its relevance to people of every kind and every culture. Uh, help us this evening as we reflect on it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want briefly this evening, well, I'll try and keep it brief, that's a message to me, um, to talk about the two kinds of missional community, mission community, that are described in, in, the, in this passage uh, about Antioch. That's what I, I want to do. And I think when we see these two models, these two ways of being missional Christians in community, uh, we'll see that we practice them already, they're part of our life in many ways, but they will also help us see how Christian witness and presence in our own town can develop. First of all, some comments on the first model. The first one has been explored a lot by uh, Bible commentators and, and preachers, and it's this extraordinary event in Antioch where for the first time the gospel message was shared with people who were not part of Jewish culture, Jewish background, uh, they might be Greek-speaking, but they, they had Jewish faith and Jewish background. So it was not 
for this, in this context, a matter of Jewish people discovering Jesus as their Messiah, discovering Jesus as their Christ. Something else was happening here. So the uh, Christians fleeing Jerusalem came to Antioch. We don't know whether really it was a very intentional policy or whether they just found themselves gossiping the gospel to their neighbors in Antioch. We don't quite know how this happened, but people around them began to take a real interest in what they were saying. They were talking about the one who uh, people accept, some people accepted as the expected Messiah of Jewish people, but his story involved not triumph and success and glory, but rejection, humiliation, and crucifixion. How could that be? And why would people be followers of such a man? Not only that, but another extraordinary, puzzling, and uh, provocative thing was being proclaimed by these people, and that was that this same person who had been crucified and strung up on a cross like a common criminal had been raised from the dead and had been seen by people for a period of 40 days or, or thereabouts and was demonstrated to be God's king of, of his creation. This was earth's true lord. The crucified man was actually earth's true lord. And it was this message, some words of that kind, that was being shared in Antioch and began to be very attractive to people. And people came from all kinds of backgrounds, Greek-speaking, Roman-speaking. We know there were people from North Africa, people from Persia, people from the East, all kinds of people, rich and poor, traders, local residents, young and old. And the most extraordinary community began to be formed. And that has been the, hear this, this, that has been the model of Christian community and of the church ever since. Now to us, that is perhaps not a particularly novel thought. In the first century, it was a revolutionary kind of community. Religion in the first century was a matter of your social identity and religion went with the clan, the tribe, the nation you belonged to, went with the family you were part of. Uh, sometimes they were, uh, drew people from different contexts, but it was in a secret society, a little community of people who had special knowledge and, and special access to the, the secret wisdom of the group. What was not known in the first century was a kind of spiritual way of living, an openness to the living God of all creation that was open to people of every kind without any distinction, purely on the basis that they wanted to follow Christ, the crucified Messiah whom God had raised from the dead. So the kind of community we are this evening, diverse and varied, uh, people of different backgrounds, there is no one at the door saying, actually, you don't qualify to be here. The word for church in Greek, ecclesia, is a word which was, a, was about public meetings. It wasn't about a secret place where those who had uh, the special call or the, or, or the special insight could gather. It was open to everyone. And this was truly a revolution. And it is one which characterizes the Christian church from then until today. The Christian church is 
a missional place into which all people are welcome who wish to discover what it might mean to follow Jesus Christ. It's missional, it's inclusive, it's contextual, it arises out of the, the community in which it is set, and it is local. That is the first model of missional church which comes out of this, out of this story. I'd like you this evening to try and grasp how unusual, how revolutionary, how it cut across all assumptions at that day, of that day of what religion, of what dealing with God or the spiritual world was about. And it is still revolutionary. And where the Christian church is not missional in terms of being about outreach and welcome to all, where the Christian church is not inclusive of all social classes and kinds and languages and cultures, where the Christian church is not contextual in the sense of being rooted in its community and committed to its community, and where it is not really local, then it ceases to be what the church is really called to be. St. Saviour's is, in that sense, uh, an Antioch pattern of church. It is the parish church idea, the open community of Christian believers worshipping God in Christ, seeking to follow as disciples of Jesus, and including and welcoming all those who want to walk in the same way, without distinction, without special hurdles that need to be overcome. The second kind of mission community is uh, the one that is uh, described in chapter 13. And it's interesting, it happens in just the same community. It happens in Antioch. And it is the work of God as much as uh, type A. Uh, the theologians and the missiologists have complicated words for these two kinds of church, which I won't bother you with. I like to call them type A and type B. I think we can handle that. Type A is what I've just tried to describe to you. And it's parish church Christianity. It's local church Christianity. It's the normal pattern of church. And whilst we might at times feel, well, it's a little bit staid, it's a little bit mundane, there's not perhaps a, a very exciting place sometimes, that is God's pattern of normal Christian community life. And it's full of tensions and it's full of conflicts because it is the only uh, community in the world which is not a private club it is not like a chess club or a gardening club where the people who come have shared and common interest this is a community of the unlike and God wants it to be like that because this is where he demonstrates to the world the new kind of human community that he wishes to build we live in a broken world. We live in a world which is in rebellion and against God. We live in a world which is full of conflict uh, uh, from one human group to another. And the local Christian church is the place where we attempt to demonstrate with all our failures and with all our getting mixed up about it, we try to demonstrate what it is to live God's kingdom life for real. And we'll stumble and we'll fall and we'll get it wrong. But this is God's experiment. This is God's laboratory. And your great privilege is to be part of it. I'd like you to go out of this uh, service tonight with an enormous sense of the privilege and the excitement of being part of such a divine experiment. It's extraordinary. And of course, at times, we'll lose the plot. And at times, it'll 
uh, be a bit boring. And at a time, times you'll think, well, it's not me. It might suit uh, people of another generation, but it doesn't suit me, or it's a bit whatever. We, the, the secret of type A missional community is being to, willing to live together in love, forgiveness, acceptance of each other, and being committed to each other's growth in the discipleship of Jesus Christ. Go for it. Do it. Do not criticize your brothers and sisters. Live together in that kind of uh, harmony because it is God's, it's, a, it's his only shop window in the world. It's the only shop window for God in the world of what kind of new humanity, new kind of human community he is building. And it is at its heart missional because it is always welcoming, always willing to tell the story, always saying, come and be part of this journey as disciples of Jesus. However, the story in Antioch has another dimension to it, and, and that is, it happens a bit later, after the year of teaching has taken place, and maybe a bit more, and God has something further in mind, and he stirs up the elders and the leaders of this church, and he gives them through the Spirit a conviction that actually the two key people the two people on whom it all hung, you might think, Barnabas and Saul, he's actually got something else for them. Can you imagine the dismay that spread through the Antioch church when the uh, elders said, well, actually, guys, we think God is saying that Barnabas and Saul need to move on. Must have been quite a, uh, a devastating moment. But that's what God was doing, and he was actually bringing together another kind of community, a community of people who are not characterized by their total inclusion, not, in, not characterized by their, their welcome of, of all and sundry who wish to enter in as followers of Jesus, but characterized by the fact that they are set apart for a specific missional task. They are set apart to cross frontiers, not necessarily, but certainly including geographical frontiers, but frontiers of any kind, whether they are frontiers of class or education or of society or of ethnicity, whatever the barriers are that uh, divide human society, God has a plan to address those, to break them open so that the type A gathered fellowship of disciples of Jesus can begin to be present there. And so Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit with the approval of the church. They had hands laid upon them to commission them for the task, and they were sent out to be gospel message bearers, to be frontier crossers, to be uh, the pioneers taking the message of the crucified Messiah and the risen Lord to new contexts. Through history, the church has manifested those two forms of missional community. And it is when those two forms of church are working together under the Holy Spirit, uh, living the missional inclusive life, but willing to set people apart for frontier crossing ministries that the church grows and the gospel grows. Paul got this clearly. His whole ministry is about mission bands. He gathers over and over again a band of mission colleagues 
who go with him across frontiers and, uh, and to take risks. Um, sometimes those risks are uh, very successful, sometimes, sometimes not. It's interesting, when, when he went to Athens, he was actually alone there uh, in his culture-crossing, frontier-crossing ministry. Some people read the story of uh, Paul in Acts and think, well, this, you know, this method wasn't very successful, was it? I don't think Paul would have worried about that. He said, my job would be to cross frontiers, to meet those for whom the message of the crucified Messiah is new. So we have two forms of church. We have the type A, if you can live with my clumsy terminology. Type A is where the church is missional, is committed to sharing the gospel uh, with all around and bringing them into the fellowship. It is missional. It is radically inclusive. There are no social or other divisions that, that cut people out. It is, what's my third one? Contextual. It is deeply committed and rooted in its setting. And it is local. And there is another kind of missional community which is adaptive, is mobile, adaptive, frontier crossing, called out by the Spirit and directed by the Spirit. One is not superior to the other. They are both necessary expressions of what the Church of Jesus Christ needs to be if it is to be healthy, if it is to mirror God's purpose to the world, and if it is to reach across frontiers of every kind. I find this intoxicating. I find this really quite extraordinary. I find this to be a real revolution in the world. Church suddenly, instead of being a rather tired remnant of a, an earlier age, becomes actually the most dynamic thing you could be part of. And I ask you, I ask you this evening to lay hold of this uh, vision from Scripture of what being a Christian in community can look like. I've spoken of Paul's missionary bands, but through history you can see this pattern, pattern happening. The Celtic missionaries moving on from their home in Ireland to Iona and from Iona to Northumberland and from Northumberland to North Germany and from North Germany to Switzerland and from Switzerland even to northern Italy, but always linked back to the church that had released them, the church that had sent them, the church that had called them out. They weren't freelancing. They weren't sort of wild cards. They weren't just uh, mavericks. They were God's selected, appointed, set-apart, church-related uh, special forces. And Christian history is, is full of it. The medieval monasteries had many of these characteristics. The Catholic missions of the 16th and 17th centuries, the Jesuits, pioneering Christian community in Goa, in India, in China, in Japan. Uh, the 19th century mission societies, my own mission society, the Church Mission Society, uh, has been the culture-crossing, frontier-crossing uh, source of uh, the Anglican Church all across Africa, all across South America, uh, in many parts of, of Asia. They are the shock troops, they are the special forces that enable the gospel to move beyond its existing communities to cross frontiers and to uh, engage with new communities. Our present world has many examples as well. I think of 
OM, YWAM, 24-7, modern mission societies, different kinds. In our town, I think of the town center chaplaincy and the street angels, and, and I think also of the common ground community of which I'm part. My passion this evening, my desire this evening, is first that you would really get hold of the extraordinary revolution and the extraordinary privilege it is to be called to be part of this Christian mission community called St. Saviour's or any other that you belong to. Seek to be missional. Seek to be inclusive. Seek to be contextual. Seek to be truly local. But I also would pray, and St. Saviour's has manifested this and characterized this uh, over many years, be willing to allow the Spirit of God to call people out for, still perhaps local, still perhaps in this context, for creative, culture-crossing, frontier-crossing ministries that take the gospel to new people. I think uh, perhaps uh, an example which is instructive for us is the Trekkers ministry here, which uh, is about crossing frontiers, is about reaching new places and new communities, is about sharing the gospel in creative and new ways that really stretch the imagination. Happens to be within our own circle here. It isn't about going to live in uh, across foreign frontiers, but it is truly uh, a frontier-crossing pioneer ministry.